dear friend of ours and one of my dad's closest friends passed away and yesterday we had a, just a wonderful memorial service for him up in Summit Valley Church. Just a, a great time of, of both grieving his loss but also celebrating his life and celebrating the fact that he was a Christ follower. Like he's having the best day ever today and tomorrow will only get better and so on and so on and Two of his nephews are here, Randy and Brian. Albie are here. Definitely want to welcome you. Welcome from Nebraska, Randy. And, and uh, it was just a wonderful service. Um, I don't know. What do you think? 300, more than 300 people were there probably. It was standing room only, people standing outside and in the foyer. And, and um, 375? Wow. Uh, quite a tribute, nonetheless, to a... Uh, to a great man that lived his faith, and uh, shared a couple of stories last week about that, and and there was a lot of sh- stories yesterday, but uh, just kind of really inspired because uh, about that, and and it connects really into today's message out of Mark chapter two. Um, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, it started several weeks ago, and and uh, <clears throat> as we get to the Gospel of Mark chapter 2, I'm going to start with two questions. Uh, and these were two questions, I believe, that Don Bo spoke about yesterday in regard to Grover in his darkest hours. And here's the questions. What is your deepest need? You, 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 and, if, and if you're a writer, write down the question. You can answer it now, you can answer it later. That's up to you. But what is your deepest need? What is the one thing that you cannot do without? I'll say in the mid-70s, Grover got to that point in his life where that was, these were the questions that were on his mind. And uh, praise the Lord, he turned to Jesus. Praise the Lord in those dark hours, he turned to the Lord. Today we're going to look at the four miracles. There's, there's really in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 17, there's really four miracles that take place. And if you're familiar with it at all, you're thinking four miracles. How do you, how do you get four miracles out of 17 verses when really the, the main one really kind of stands out and it's kind of obvious? But today we're going to look at these four miracles, the four miracles in one and discover really the deepest need that we all have. Let's go ahead and go to the Word. I'll read through the passage, and we'll come back to the top. Mark chapter 2, verse 1 says, And again he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately, there's that word that pops up 40 times in the Gospel of Mark. Immediately many gathered together, so there was no longer room to receive them. Kind of like yesterday, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them, and they came to him, bringing a paralytic who, had car- who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was, and so <clears throat> they had broken through, and they let down the bed on which the paralytic was laying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they had reasoned thus within themselves, 
He said to them, Why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven you? Or say, Arise and take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And immediately he arose and took up the bed, and went out in the presence of all of them, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. No kidding. That's my addition. Verse 13 says, And then he went out again by the sea, and all the multitudes came to him, and he taught them, and he passed by, and he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, Follow me. So he arose and followed him. And now when it happened, he... Now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many, there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and the Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, How is it that he eats with and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I did not come to... I can't even say the words. I did not come to call the righteous, Jesus says, but sinners to repentance. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We confess, uh, Lord, I confess my need... uh, for your strength in this moment. Lord, to uh, bring out the things that you've shared with me. And Father, that, uh, that, that all of us here, <laughs> that we wouldn't be hearing just me, Lord, but we would be hearing your Spirit speak to our hearts. And that your Spirit, Father, would, would move in a way this morning that would draw people to you. Lord, that we could all indeed discover our deepest need. We thank you. We praise you, Father, as we open your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's go back to the top. In the first couple of verses here, Mark really tees up something really mind-blowing that Jesus is going to do. And I know that we just read through the story, but uh, if you kind of put yourself back at the beginning in kind of a chronological order here and and Jesus was going around Galilee, and, and he was teaching, he was healing people, uh, he was sharing the gospel. As we've talked about before, his main ministry is to preach the word. It says, and he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he went to a, the house. I kind of find that funny because, you know, is it... What does that mean? Like the house? Like you all grew up in, or most of us grew up in a small town. Like there's always that house in town where everybody gathers, right? I'm guessing it's that kind of a deal. You know, Uh, your buddy's place where everybody showed up after school. That kind of a thing. And it says, so that there was no longer room to receive them. Many people were gathering. And his main goal there at the end of the second verse is to preach the word to them. But Mark's account shows us one thing. It shows us that Jesus' ministry was getting really big, really fast. It was getting really big, really fast. And and kind of in my mind, and maybe in your mind, 
Like, we have a tendency to think, no, no, you know, if we're going to build some, we've got to be real methodical and, and all of that. And, and I'm not saying that that's not important. But the reality is, is that when the Messiah shows up and he's healing dozens and dozens, maybe hundreds and hundreds of people, guess what? People are going to show up, right? They're going to show up. And there was no longer room to receive them, it said, not even near the door. Mark one twenty eight says that we looked at last week, says that after a dramatic rescue of a demon-possessed man, immediately his fame had spread through all the region of Galilee. That's in chapter 1. At this point in his ministry, Jesus attracted crowds wherever he went. And even though the crowds got big, Jesus never wavered in his main ministry. And his main ministry was to preach and teach the word. We've looked at that in the last couple of sermons. His main ministry was to teach and preach the gospel. That's what he did, Mark 128, Mark 138 through 39. Then it says, then he came, in verse 3, then then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they had could not come near because of the crowd, because of all the people. They uncovered the roof where he was. And so when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was dying. Now, I had a thought. I could get a couple of guys. I should have staged this up a little better. But I didn't want sheetrock to be falling on your guys' heads. We could have had a real live demonstration of this. I don't think the deacons would have went for all of the rebuild, though. But these guys were intent in helping their buddy. They were intent on helping their friend. It says, when Jesus saw their faith, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven you. If you don't get anything else from today, know this, that the faith of your friends is important. The faith of the people that you hang out with, the faith of your brothers, men, the faith of your sisters in Christ, ladies, It is important. It matters. That faith was being exercised to essentially say, hey, as a group of guys, we have to do whatever it takes to get this guy some help. That's faith in action. That's that's faith. And you guys just read, we just read the story. That's faith that Jesus honors is when a couple of dudes or several guys or a couple of ladies get together, whatever the case may be, but we're looking at a couple of guys, several guys getting together, saying, hey, we got to get this guy in. we got to get this guy to Jesus. And whatever it takes, that's what we're going to do. That's faith in action. That's something that Jesus recognizes. So I want to ask a couple of questions. Do you have that type of friends? Do you have that type of friends? Do your friends take you to Jesus in your hour of need? Let me ask another question a little differently. Because a lot of times we have friends that that treat us that way. But the the second question, or maybe a bigger question, is, is are you that type of friend? Are you the type of brother and sister in the Lord that is going to take your buddy, your sister... Your friend that needs Jesus' touch. And are you going to have that type of determination to say whatever it takes, the type that would do whatever it took to help a brother or sister in need? 
the type that was... <laughs> are you the type of person? And do you have the type of people around you that would ruin a structure? Let's be honest, right? There was some, there was some destruction that went on to get this guy to Jesus. That's physical. That's work. That means there's some intention. That means that I'm going to move heaven and earth for my brother so that he can get a touch from Jesus. Are we that type of people? We have to ask ourselves. Are we the type of people that, takes, that, that are whatever it takes to make this thing happen, whatever it takes to get my brother, to get my sister to Jesus so that they can get what they need the most, so that they can have the deepest need met in their lives, are we willing to be that type of people? Are we willing to not be so concerned about the earthly things like a building? That's why I said I almost uh, teed this thing up if yesterday wasn't so busy. I said, hey, how much money is in the building budget? <laughs> can, we, can we fix this thing when it's done? <laughs> Anybody got a good tarp? All right, it's supposed to rain all week. You've got to add a little levity to it, but... They were counting on Jesus to heal this man. You know why they were... <laughs> you know it was in the back of their minds? Our brother needs Jesus' touch. And it sure would be nice to not have to hoist him back through the same hole. <laughs> and here's why. Because their brother didn't need to stay on the mat. He needed Jesus' touch. So they were fully expecting when they started tearing the roof apart that they would lower this guy down, that Jesus would heal him of his paralysis, and he'd walk out the door. Are we that type of people? Am I that type of person? I ask myself. But then the craziest part of the whole story as Jesus just turns and says, Son, your sins are forgiven you. Uh, what? <laughs> I, I can imagine four or five guys sitting up on top of the roof holding ropes and saying, What did he just say? Where, where's the healing part? Where's the, where's the, I, did you guys see him get on his feet? He's not on his feet. What, what just happened here? This is insane. We just tore this building apart thinking that our buddy, that our friend, that our brother would stand up and walk out. He's still laying down. And Jesus said, what? He said, what? No doubt they were spellbound. They, they, they were quite like, why did he say that? Why would he say that? Can you imagine how the friends on the roof felt in that moment? They went to all this work, all this trouble, all this effort. And now the teacher only wants to forgive his sins? No, he's paralyzed. He can't walk. He's never been able to walk. We wanted him to walk, not be forgiven. But Jesus addresses the greatest need first. Jesus addresses the greatest need in your life and in my life first. 
That's why we have, to, we have to constantly make sure that we have prioritized in our minds and in our hearts and in our relationships the first thing first. Because Jesus always starts with the most important thing. He always starts where people need the best thing. I'm sure this guy had all kinds of external issues, but Jesus addresses the internal issues, the heart issues. What good is it if a man has two whole legs and walks right into hell with two healed legs? What good is it? Think about it. Jesus could have healed this guy. That doesn't, that doesn't guarantee just because he's healed, that doesn't guarantee that he's trusted Christ as the Savior. That doesn't guarantee that this guy would see Jesus as the Messiah. There's no guarantee there. It's great. It's awesome. The miracle itself proves that he's the Messiah for sure. But what good is it, I'm asking you to ask yourself this question, what good is it if people get healed physically, live the rest of their lives, and go to hell in the end? What, so they get 50, 60 years of standing upright? And eternity in agony? Jesus came to provide forgiveness of sins. He came to heal people's deepest need. And our deepest need is forgiveness for sin. Warren Wiersbe says this, Forgiveness is the greatest miracle that Jesus ever performs. It meets the greatest need, and it costs the greatest price. It brings the greatest blessing and the most lasting results. I can't think of a better way to say it than the way that Warren Wearsby lays out Jesus' forgiveness. And then, of course, there's always going to be those in the audience that bring doubt or bring accusation. There's always those that are going to be questioning every little thing. When Jesus says the most important thing, hey, let's be honest, for some people in society it's not enough. Or it's not the right thing. Obviously those people don't see Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah. Mark 2, 6-7 goes on to say, and some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? There's always the doubter, always the accuser. Now, they were using the right kind of logic, but coming to the wrong conclusion. And here's what I mean. They correctly believed that only God could forgive sins. That's the right logic in that moment. They correctly believed that. Hey, only God can forgive sins. They've grown up in this whole system that reflects that central point. That God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is the one that forgives sins in Him alone. And they were even correct in examining this new teacher. Some scholars believe that uh, a miracle worker in this first century in, in Israel had to be, quote-unquote, examined to see if they were authentic or a phony. So members of the Sanhedrin or members of the, the religious uh, leading class would either go themselves or they would send somebody to travel around to see if this guy or this person was the real deal. 
You know, was he shuffling? Uh, was he, did he have a little shell game going? Was it that kind of thing? Was it a sleight of hand? Was it demonic? Was it, was it genuine? And so it had to be proven out. It had to be examined. And they had to bear witness to either the truth or the deception. But these guys, their error here was refusing to see who Jesus is. They refused to really see who Jesus is. He's God the Son who has authority for, to forgive sins. And again and again during the life of Christ, and we're going to see this over, and, all, over uh, and over through the Gospel of Mark, you'll see this theme reappear, the same dilemma. And here's what it is. If he were not divine then indeed he was a blasphemer. There could be no third way out. Either he was divine or he wasn't divine, but there's no third option in this system. And so is it the real deal? And of course, they were just thinking it. The first, as I mentioned earlier, the first and most important miracle of the four is that Jesus forgives sins. And remember that Mark says here in verses 6 and 7 that these guys were only thinking this. They were wondering in their hearts. As they, were, they were reasoning in their hearts, the word says. So they were just thinking about, like, wow, I can't believe what he just said. And Jesus turns in verse 8 and says, But immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, Why do you reason about these things in your hearts? The second miracle is, is that Jesus knows our thoughts. Jesus knows our thoughts. In a stunning moment, these scribes knew Jesus could read their evil hearts, and they should have persuaded them that this should have persuaded them that Jesus really was God. See, when I share with people or even think about it myself, the fact that Jesus knows my every thought, there's really two outflows of that. One is anxiety, like uh, this is not good. Or, it's exactly the opposite. It's not anxiety, it's comfort. See, there's, for the Christ follower, there's a comfort to know that Jesus knows what you're thinking. And if it's uncomfortable, if it's full of anxiety, you better check yourself. You better figure out why the, the truth the foundational truth that Jesus knows our thoughts is creating anxiety in me or in you. We better take a look at that. We better start searching it out. We better start seeing what's going on around us. On the flip side, on the flip side, it can be the greatest comfort there is. Because let's be honest, there's a lot of things that we think about that need a little that need Jesus to, to be inserted into those thoughts. There's a lot of things that, that we question, just like these guys are questioning, that we need Jesus to speak into that thought. We need Jesus to speak into that question that hasn't even hit our lips yet and bring some comfort to what now, what's going on, how, how do I walk through something, how do, I, you know, how do I get through this dilemma at work, how do, I, you know, how do I interact with this person or that person. Whatever the case is, Whatever the situation is, man, I'm telling you, it's a wonder. And it's a comfort that Jesus knows our thoughts. Yesterday in the service, the dark hour that, that Don Bo talked about in Grover Albee's life was the fact that his wife had left him. 
And here he is raising two, you know, preteen girls. Am I right on that? About preteen age, junior high age girls. And uh, Judy shared, the oldest daughter shared that, you know, they, they live for a bit on frozen pizza because their dad didn't know how to cook anything. And there was people that come around them in that dark time. And, 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 and Grover really began to kind of spiral out of control within himself a little bit. And, Grover, and, and Don Bo mentioned that he, he went so far down to despair of life and thoughts of suicide. I'll tell you what, if you're that far down, you better thank the good Lord that he can read your thoughts before those thoughts turn into action. That's why it's a comfort. That's why it's a joy. That's where Jesus can bear right down and deal in those areas of life where we have the deepest of needs. See, in Mark 2, Jesus is giving us a real-time demonstration of what the writer of Hebrews would later record in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 through 13, where Hebrews says, For the word of God... For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. The gospel of John starts out his gospel, or John starts out his gospel account by calling Jesus the word in John 1.1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Here the Hebrew writer says, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the, even to the division of soul and spirit and joints of morrow. And here it is. It's a, the word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open in the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Jesus knows our every thought. He's proved that when he asked the next question. And Jesus asked these scribes why they were thinking and reasoning the way that they were. And he puts these scribes in this particular bind here. He says in verse 9 of Mark 2, Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise and take up your bed and walk? What's, what's easier? Jesus had just told this guy, Your sins are forgiven. These guys are only thinking... You know, this is blasphemy, this is heresy, this is, this is against everything we've ever been taught. Jesus reads their mind and then he asks them this question, puts them in this mind. Hey, what's easier? You tell me what's easier. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth. Circle that phrase, Son of Man, in your Bible. But you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he turns to the paralytic. He says to the paralytic, verse 11, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And immediately he arose and took up his bed and went in the presence of all of them, not through the roof. That's my insertion. He walked out the door like his brothers and the Lord had faith that he would. And so they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Jesus often uses this title, Son of Man, because in his day, it was the messianic title, free from political and nationalistic sentiment. Jesus could have more commonly referred to himself as king or Christ. But those titles in the ears of his audience 
sounded like the one who will defeat the Romans. Jesus specifically uses, you're going to see this time and time again also throughout the gospel, he specifically uses this phrase, son of man. I'm the son of man. We'll get into it in a later time. And immediately this guy arose. Imagine the tension that was in that scene. This is crazy. This is the craziest movie scene you could ever draw up. Everybody there was on edge. Everybody there was leaning in. I mean, they were, they were wanting to know what's going to happen. You know, here Jesus, first he tells this guy, hey, your sins are forgiven. Now, he's in this, you know, he's in this sword fight, verbal sword fight with these religious dudes. And so everybody's tense. Everybody's on edge. And then as soon as he's done talking with them, he tells this guy, all right, just go ahead and get up and go. You're good to go. So here's all the people in the scene, if you step back and look at it like a movie scene. Here's all of everybody that was on edge there. First, there was the scribes. The scribes were tense because Jesus challenged them and said he would demonstrate that he was the Son of God. So the things that they were thinking, he turned around and basically just proved in the moment, that second. Oh, well, you want to get fussy? All right, here you go. Get up, go. So they're on edge. The paralyzed man was on edge. He was tense because he wondered if Jesus really would heal him. He's still laying on the mat. Take yourself, like, replay the scene. Right? He's still laying on the mat. Jesus says, you're forgiven, but he's still laying down thinking, thanks for the forgiveness. I really would just like to walk today. So he's sitting there wondering, all right, I mean, what's going to happen here? You know, everybody upstairs said that I could walk out of here. Is it really going to happen? Definitely he was tense. The crowd was tense. The crowd was tense because they sensed the tension of everybody else. We know how that goes, right? Things get a little dicey, and you're in the crowd, and you're looking around, and like you're just like, yeah, and somebody's over here talking. You had a little conversation. Here's, what, here's how that goes. Somebody's talking. Next thing you know, you're like, yeah, those people over there, they're really going at it. And this person's still talking, and you're now kind of being rude because you're not listening to them. You're just like, I think he's going to swing I think they're, they're going to go chest to chest. You know, the tension was really building up here in the moment. So the crowd's all leaning in. Everybody's paying attention to what's going on. The crowd's tense. We've been in that situation. Definitely. The owner of the house, of course, he's tense because he wondered how much it would cost to repair his roof. I thought that was the funniest of the bunch. How's this going to happen? The four friends, they were tense because they were <laughs> kind of getting tired by now, looking down through a hole. It's funny, really, if you think about this scene, the only one not tense was Jesus himself because he had the perfect peace that when he said, arise, take up your bed and go to your house, that guy just did it. Like, like I mean, no beads of sweat for Jesus on this thing. Just boom, go do it. And at the command of his voice... Just like speaking the world into existence, speaking the universe into existence. At the command of the voice of the creator of everything that we ever see or experience, or way beyond any of that, this guy, everything that was broken in him was immediately healed. In an instant. Hey, guess what? No six weeks of therapy. You know, no, no dragging down to, you know, to the doctor to get checked out. No updates. The 
This guy just simply went home. The power of Jesus to heal and the authority to forgive sins was immediately vindicated. The third miracle of the four is, is that Jesus actually does heal physical issues. And the reality is for us is that many times that's where we start. We need a healing touch for a physical issue, a physical problem, a health issue. My good friend Jerry Bruce passed away yesterday morning at 5 a.m. Jerry needed a healing touch. Jesus gave him exactly what he was asking for. (laughs) He took him home to be with him. Jerry was kind of a pillar in the Summit Valley community. They would say maybe a newcomer, although he had lived there for 25 years. And Jerry had come down with cancer, throat cancer, respiratory issues, and um, really had been sliding downhill for a while, been down a deaconess. And I talked to <coughs> I talked to my good friend Nathan Carlson. He, who, Nathan Carlson's dad, Bob, and Jerry Bruce have been about the best of friends that you can imagine. So Nathan drove uh, his dad down to essentially say goodbye this last week. And Nathan said he walked out of there. <laughs> and Jerry's faith was just amazing to think about. Because here he was, he was talking, they were laughing, they were having a good time. The problem was is that Jerry couldn't do any of that unless he was plugged into a respirator. And he said, I, I'm not going to live electronically. I can't live the rest of my life electronically. And I'm willing to let God do what only God can do in the moment. See, Jerry didn't get the physical healing that this guy got but he got the eternal healing that he really needed. And Jesus demonstrates for us in Mark 2 that he has a bigger plan where Jesus prioritizes our problems in this order. And he addresses these in Mark 2 in this order. Jesus starts with the issues of the heart first. The sin issues first. Then he goes to the thought issues second. And then to the body. And a lot of times if we're really honest, like, I just want my elbow healed. (laughs) Right? It'd be great. Um, Man, I'm really emotional today, which is rare. I never cried with any of my kids were born. You'd think, like, that's the perfect opportunity to be emotional. And there's only just a couple people there to see it. It didn't happen. I was like, hey. My feet are sore. It's been a long weekend. If you don't get that joke, I'll just tell you. My abiding advice to any expecting father is to buy the best shoes possible because you will be on your feet for a while. Back to the text. Jesus prioritizes our problems, heart, thoughts, and body. We often go the other way. Indeed, I'd love to have a left elbow that worked as it should. But in the reality of the big scope of eternity and and what God is doing, I would rather have a heart that was clean. (laughs) That's what his priority is. He said, Mark, I would rather have your sins forgiven than worry about your elbow. I I would rather that your thought life is pure than your elbow. 
And if the elbow, elbow gets healed, awesome. Then just use it to praise me. Jesus works from the inside out. And he is concerned for every part of us for sure, but he works from the inside out. And Jesus demonstrates this principle in the next five verses as we're introduced to another new disciple. If you watch the chosen episodes, this is the quirkiest of all of the disciples. It's Matthew, or known as Levi here. And Mark, uh, verse 13, chapter 2, verse 13 says this, then he, spent, <clears throat> then he went out again by the sea. So this is all after the guy gets healed. And all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. And he, as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. It always amazes me just how diverse a group that Jesus assembles here to be his disciples. This, is, this was, this was uh, so far outside of the norm of anything that you would think of in that day. Uh, Levi, Matthew, as he's called also, I think in the Gospel of Matthew, I'm not sure what chapter, probably 9, I think is where you, you see that connection. But he was a Jew that worked for the Romans collecting taxes for the people. Uh, he was, in essence, a first century IRS agent. Uh, The Jewish people rightly considered them traitors, and the reason for that is they were the most visible Jewish collaborators with Rome. They were on the front line so that every single citizen could see these guys at work. They were traitors to the Jewish people. And they went, uh, they were the front man, in a sense, for Rome, uh, quite literally the first century mafia. They were extortioners because they kept whatever they over-collected. Here's how the system worked. Uh, Some scholars, so I read this in a commentary, but essentially Rome would put out the tax collection business in in a bid type of a scenario. They'd put it out for bid, and so uh, Jews would then, if you wanted to be so, they would bid on that, on that contract, and then the highest bidder, the highest bidder would get the job. And Rome awarded that uh, to, to that highest bidder. I'll get back to my notes. And the man then collected the taxes, paid the Romans what was promised, and kept the remainder. That's why they were extortionists. Therefore, there was a lot of incentive then for these tax collectors to overcharge and to cheat any way they could because whatever was left over was pure profit for them. So if your taxes were, you know, a thousand bucks and, uh, and this guy would lean on you and he would have the full weight of, you know, Roman military behind them and he would lean on you instead of uh, charging you a grand, you know, he'd say, hey, I need, you know, I need 1,700 bucks. Your taxes are 1,700 bucks. Pay them up. You know, and then he'd keep the 700. So when a Jew became a tax collector in that society... They really signed their life away in a sense. They were outcast. They were disqualified as a judge or a witness in a court session. They were excommunicated from the synagogue in the eyes of the community. They were a disgrace, and that disgrace extended even to their family. This was a big deal. It was a big deal that Jesus said, yeah, I want one of those guys on my team. I want one of those, you know, traitors... We know the whole story. He got two, and one was converted. 
But I want one of those guys on my team. It's amazing to see how much Jesus loved him and cared for him. The fourth miracle, the fourth miracle is how much Jesus loves the unlovable. These guys were commonly accepted to be unlovable in Israel. And it's amazing to see how much Jesus cared for him and brought him along. Verse 15 goes on to say, Now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house. All right, so he's brought him on the team. Plenty of questions about that. Now we're going to go have dinner with him. Sure, there will be plenty of questions about that. Let's read it. Then that many, as he was dining in Levi's house, that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many, and they followed him. That's the crowd. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collector and sinners, they said to his disciples, How is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? So first they're talking about how is it that he tells people they're forgiven. Now how is it that he's you know, socially outside of the bounds of Israel? How is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not call, come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's Jesus' reply. That's his heart for people. See, the, uh, the term Pharisee there are, literally means separated ones, or you could easily put in there sanctified ones. They were set apart. They were separate from the crowd. They separated themselves from everything that they thought was unholy, and they thought that everyone except for themselves was separated from the love of God. They were the select crew, in their own eyes anyway. Luke 18, 19 describes their attitude this way. He spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. That's their hard attitude. These guys' whole disposition was, I'm good to go with God because of what I've done. Their whole attitude was, is, I'm looking down my nose, I'm looking downhill at the rest of the crowd because I'm a selected one. I'm a chosen one. I'm a sanctified one. And they were mystified as to why Jesus would hang out with the unholy in the unwashed masses. And Jesus' answer was simple. If the worship team wants to come on up, we'll wind this thing down. Jesus' answer was both simple but yet profound. He simply stated that he didn't come for those that think they can cure themselves, but for those who have come to the end of themselves. Jesus says, I'm, I'm not here for everybody that thinks that they're good to go, you know, with whatever they're believing. I'm here for those that are really sick. I'm here for those that have come to the end of themselves, those that really understand that they're sinful and in need of a physician. I'm here for those that have a real understanding of where they're at, not those that hide behind the veil of religiosity. See, Jesus is the physician of the soul. That's why I said he always works from the inside out. He always works from the heart. 
out. He's the physician of the soul. Jesus is the perfect doctor to heal us of our sin. Nobody else can do that. The great news is with Jesus as a physician is that he's always available. He always makes a perfect diagnosis. He always provides the complete cure as he works from the inside out. And the great news is, is he even pays the bill. Amen? Let's stand and worship together as we close.